Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. very motives we're so happy you've joined us today and if you're new we're happy that you're checking us out for sure and i'm also happy today that we're not doing a video podcast because this girl is a hot mess because i did not get a lot of sleep last night (laughs) were you up watching horror movies again surprisingly no (laughs) but i did only get three hours of sleep i was elbow deep into dirt bags (laughs) oh Yeah, that happens from time to time. It was. You get caught up and you just keep searching and doing different stuff. And then it's 3 a.m. in the morning. It was. It was 3.30 in the morning by the time I finished. (laughs) Oh, man. I was thinking about you, though, when I was researching today's case. Oh, how come? Because I was wondering if you would pick out the most reoccurring site of murders in horror movies. Oh. Oh, man. I should have been watching a horror movie last (laughs) night to brush up on my knowledge, but... My guess would be out in the wild, like in a cabin or like a retreat kind of somewhere. Oh, you are such a horror movie buff. It is. It's a campsite. Oh, really? (laughs) That is always freaky. Forget the bears, people. It's the psychos you need to worry about. That's right. It's always a campsite out secluded in the middle of nowhere. Right. Or a house in the middle of nowhere. Like just kind of, yeah. That scenery. Where nobody else is around. For sure. Uh-huh. And so as the May long weekend approaches here in Canada and people are busy making camping reservations in the weeks to come, I was thinking about all those creepy ghost stories that we tell the kids around the campfire so that they won't wander too far and all those horror movies <laughs> that tell us not to go camping as we get excited about making our camping reservations. <laughs> So you're saying you're the type of mom that freaks their kids out about axe murderers while you're out camping? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it keeps them close that I don't have to worry about them wandering off. That's awesome. Actually, one of the scariest movies I ever watched was about a camping trip where these two men had totally annihilated an entire family while camping. Oh, that's pretty close to the case that we're going to talk about today. Ooh. So as we're all making our camping trips you're ready to terrify us. So maybe we won't be going camping this summer. Yeah, that's exactly it. (laughs) After hearing today's story, you might think twice about making those reservations. Oh, man. All right. So let's get into it. Everyone picture when you're camping out at the fire, it's dark, you can't really see through the trees. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) Really? Yes. (laughs) I'm going to be freaked out with this one because I'm going to be visualizing. So back in 1982, the Johnson-Bentley family was gathered around the campfire, swapping stories, and enjoying just the great outdoors of the British Columbia wilderness in Canada when the unthinkable happens. The lives of three generations would be taken during that family vacation by one beastly dirtbag creeping in the shadows. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Three generations? Three generations because camping's a family affair, right? It's true. BC is Canada's most western (laughs) province that borders the Pacific Ocean. Located in its east-central interior is the Wells Gray Park, a national park of 5,250 square kilometers or 2,027 square miles of beautiful forests, waterfalls, and mountain ranges. It's one of their larger provincial parks in BC. And BC is beautiful. If you Mm -hmm. have not been, you should. Yeah, it is gorgeous. It is. It was supposed to be the family trip of the season. 
Bob Johnson, 44, and his wife, Jackie, who is 41, would be traveling with their two daughters, Janet, 13, and Karen, 11, through Jasper National Park to meet up with Jackie's parents, the Bentleys, to spend some time together camping with them. George, 66, and Edith, 59, would be bringing their new camper and boat, and all were excited to try out a new park that had been recommended to them by a friend. And we all do that, right? You we get do. recommendations from your friends who are like, I'm going to try out that new area. Totally. Mm-hmm. We've done that. Yep. The trip was especially exciting for George and Edith because George had retired and he and Edith were looking forward to the many adventures that they had in mind for the next stages of their lives. Oh, no. They had just stocked up on all this fun equipment. They bought the new camper. They bought a boat and they were off to adventure. Yeah, they're ready to enjoy their retirement. Mm-hmm. The Johnson family loaded up their 1979 Plymouth Caravel with all of their camping gear packed into a car top carrier on Monday, August 2nd, and headed out to camp along the way to meet up with the grandparents, who were traveling in their new 1981 Ford camper. How sad, because you're so excited in anticipation waiting to go camping. Yeah, camping is so much fun. And you do all that work and preparation just to get out there and just relax in the wilderness. Sometime after meeting up, the extended family found a secluded campsite in the Wells Gray Park in the old Bear Creek prison site. It was perfect for what the family wanted. It was close to the good fishing hole, it was well-treed for shelter, and it was close to an old abandoned prison site, hence the name, that the girls thought might be even haunted. So they just thought this was like a fabulous site. That would make me a little bit nervous. I don't know if I'd want to camp out by an old prison site. Well, apparently it was this fabulous site because it was already level. It was set up for people to kind of group camp there Mm -hmm. and let's be real who am I kidding of course you and I would be like yeah let's do it (laughs) and just think how well you could actually frighten your kids (laughs) most importantly for this family the site was away from every other site allowing them the privacy to just enjoy one another in nature but the campsite wasn't as private as they thought oh no from the dense bushes that surrounded their campsite, they were actually being watched. My eyes went big. You guys can't see, but they did. <laughs> From the bushes, a six foot, three inch tall, 250 pound man was watching. And because of his size, he had earned the nickname Moose. This is not the type of moose you want to come face to face with in the wilderness. Not at all. This guy's a tank. He had been on his way home from another one of his random work sites and decided to take a walk. When he came across the family, he found that he liked to watch the idyllic interaction. He found a vantage point where he could sit and watch the four adults and two young girls around the campfire. At one point, he believed that those he watched saw him and he ducked into the bushes. This scared him off and he returned home. The next night, he returned again, watching the family from the bushes. That's super creepy. Mm-hmm. Using the trailsman skills he had learned as a child growing up on an isolated 160-acre farm in the wilderness, he stealthily snuck up on the unsuspecting family. On the second night? Mm-hmm. Oh, he wasted no time. No. It wouldn't be until August 23rd when the manager of the Groman Mills in West Kelowna would call the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to report that Bob Johnson hadn't shown up for work. A missing persons report was filed almost immediately because the family was supposed to have returned on the 16th. And it was totally out of Bob's character to not show up for work. He had never missed a day before in like 20 years. Oh, man. The last time the family had been in contact with anyone was on August 6th, when Edith had reported to her other daughter that hadn't went camping with them, that all was well. They were just out picking berries. Soon search parties were organized and posters were put up. But in the vast and dense forest, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Lots of people came up with different stories to explain the family absences. 
Some people thought they were just taking extra vacation. Some thought they actually were lost. And even the idea of them running off and joining a commune was thrown into the mix. Oh, wow. They were just throwing out these random suggestions about what this family would do. How would it, How does a whole family go missing? That is true. So I can see why people would think that. Yeah, they just got really random with their suggestions. The only thing that was for certain was that the family had disappeared without a trace. This is in 1982. There's no cell phones. You're not checking in with each other. There's no GPS or tracking. They had literally gone out into the wilderness and disappeared. That's so freaky. Mm -hmm. On September 13, 1982, almost a month after they had been reported missing, Kurt Crack from Abbotsford remembered seeing a burnt out Chrysler in the woods near Battle Mountain Road when he was out picking mushrooms. What kind of mushrooms? <laughs> Apparently, they were the okay kind. They weren't magical? <laughs> Not magical mushrooms. Okay. <laughs> this guy's a reliable witness. All right, because that was my next comment was how reliable was he? Was he consuming these special mushrooms at the time? <laughs> no, he All actually right. saw something. Okay. And good thing. <laughs> the sergeant that followed up on the tip followed the man's directions down a horse trail barely big enough for a car and found tire tracks that led into an even more densely treed area. It was clear from about 45 meters away or 150 feet that the car had been burned and was the Johnson's car because they could still see the license plate. That's terrible. It was a sad day for all who had searched for them. Well, because now it appears that something malicious has happened. Yeah, because even from the 45 meters away, they were able to see there were signs that a crime had been committed and called the homicide team right away. The moisture from the forest had made the car already begin to rust and it looked more like it had been out there like 20 years but the ground all around the car about a 20 foot circle around it had all been burned to the point that the door handles had melted from the heat of the fire oh that's so, an intense burn uh-huh it was clear that an accelerant had been used mm -hmm. which would indicate foul play mm -hmm. and so they knew even before they even got close to the car just from these signs that they were seeing that there was something fishy going on the driver's door had been left open and bones were visible in the back seat of the car. <gasps> when they opened the trunk, two small skulls were face up on a pile of charred bones, looking right back at the investigator that opened the trunk. Oh my goodness. One of the skulls had what looked like a bullet entry wound over the left eye socket, and a bullet remained in one of the small skulls. Originally, it was thought that it was just the younger family in the car. And then the grandparents were still missing and police remained hopeful that they would end up finding the grandparents camper because it was much more obvious. It was a camper with a boat on top of it. Right. It wouldn't be until after pathologists had gone through 50 bags of collected remains of scattered charred bone and ash that they would realize that actually all four adults had been shoved in the backseat of the car. Oh my. 50 bags? 50 bags. The pathologists found that one of the adult skulls also had a bullet hole through it. And detectives used dental records to confirm four of the six people in the car. Edith and Bob had worn dentures that had melted in the fire, but oh. were assumed to be the last two members of the Johnson and Bentley campers. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. The whole family was in the car. The coroner was able to determine that the bullet holes had come from a 22, but was unable to confirm that if the shooting had caused the death because the bodies had essentially been cremated and little evidence remained. And they sat out in the forest for a whole month. Yeah. The remains of all six victims would fit into one child-sized coffin to be buried altogether. <gasps> wow. Mm -hmm. It's a hot fire. Yeah. Police believe that such a heinous crime must have been committed by at least a couple of people. And this theory was spurred on by reports that the camper had actually been seen in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, heading east. 
It was reported that it was being driven by two Frenchmen, and police assumed that Quebec must have been their intended destination. So as they were out searching for this notorious camper, they were getting reports and tips in that two Frenchmen were driving the camper across the country and heading east. But we know that's not true because it's one guy. Yeah. Total wild goose chase. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because then they're being led astray. Mm-hmm. They had assumed that this crime where you could kill four adults and two teenagers had to be more than one person. Yeah, it doesn't seem likely. No, not at all. And it would make sense that someone has stolen the camper and that's why they can't find it. Mm-hmm. Police appealed to the public for help because at this time the camper could have been anywhere. It was a month after they had been missing and the last report is that it was headed east. Tips rolled in by the hundreds, averaging a new tip every three minutes. 40 investigators working 16-hour days for several months would be required to follow up on all the tips. Whoa. Tips came in from everywhere, but unfortunately it led the police nowhere. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. One every three minutes? Is yeah. that normal for a case? No. And yeah. I'll get into why they received so many tips. Okay. It's quite interesting how they chose to publicize this case to bring in tips from the public. Hmm. I'm intrigued. So all these tips kept coming in until a ranger of the Wells Gray Parks returned from an outpost and saw the news after being in the bush out in seclusion. So he had been out in the bush working out by himself. And so when he came back to civilization, he started watching all the news reports. He reported immediately to the police that he had seen a similar truck camper out by the old Bear Creek campground. The police now had somewhere to start. At least they knew where the family had been camping. Because up until now, they had no idea where they were camping prior to that. Oh, You always need to tell someone where you're going, even if it's just for a day hike. Absolutely. But this family hadn't reported anything. And so they didn't even know where their campsite was to begin a search. Oh, man. No wonder Mm -hmm. they couldn't find them for so long. Yeah, that's why it took over a month for somebody to actually report the car being seen and found. So they started to search that general campsite and they found a campsite with six 22 caliber bullet casings that matched one of the bullets that had been found inside the skull. Curiously, though, there was no trace of any of the family's camping equipment other than some beer cans known to be George's favorite and a couple of sharpened sticks presumed to be for roasting marshmallows. Oh, wow. They didn't find any of their equipment. And that's only one bullet per person. Mm -hmm. He's got to be a good shooter for that. Yep. And where's all the blood evidence? Had it all been washed away by then? There was nothing left in the campsite at all. That's incredible. Mind you, I guess they didn't have the technology that they do now either. No, remember this is back in the 1980s. Right. I'm thinking like now they would have had to have found something. Yeah. The case was highly publicized though. And the manhunt continued for these two mysterious men, despite the use of helicopters and long aerial searches and even tracking down everyone that had reserved a campsite in that park. The trail had gone cold by April 1983. Police were stumped. They even tried hypnosis, psychics, and infrared They aired a reenactment of the crime to encourage more people to call the tip line and even had an exact replica of the truck camper made complete with boat on top to raise awareness for the manhunt. Oh, wow. So they actually made this exact replica, put a big sign on the truck and drove it around. Well, a lot of us need that visual, right? Mm Because you can say a camper with a boat on top, but to actually see it is a totally different thing. Have you seen this camper? Right. And the reenactment, did they air that on TV? Yes. Is it bad that my mind went to you and your husband reenacting the (laughs) Stephen Shirt case? (laughs) Sometimes you just got to reenact it. Yeah. You just got to see the visual of it, right? 
But what was interesting is just what they thought had happened. They had no idea at this point what had actually happened. All they knew was that they had found six casings. Yeah, so how do you even reenact that? Yeah, I don't know. They just reenacted what they believed happened. The replica of the truck camper that they made was driven all around BC and all the way to Quebec. In case it was those two Frenchmen. Mm -hmm. They released composite sketches of the two most likely suspects, the two Frenchmen, that had been seen at the service station with a similar camper around the time of the murders. So they were mad on the trail of these two Frenchmen. Despite the volume of tips coming in and the amount of work being done to process them, police learned very little useful information about the Bentley's missing truck camper. The campaign was expensive and not very effective, and as a result, faced a lot of criticism. Oh, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing left to go on, so police didn't know what else to do. These poor little Frenchmen. (laughs) The whole nation is looking for them, and they're just like, Zut de l'os! Yeah, they had nothing to do with it. They just happened to have a similar truck (laughs) with a camper on top. But that would freak you out, though, to see people looking for you and you haven't done anything. Well, it sounded like most of the tips they had coming in were of the replica. Oh, that's true. Mm -hmm. Even though they had a sign on it that said, you know, call the tip line. People were calling in the replica saying, I just saw it here. That's so funny. Like, yeah, we were just there. And that's where you got the tip line (laughs) number that you're calling right now. It was an interesting campaign that they ran to find tips. And you can see why they didn't repeat that. Mm -hmm. Why that's not a common campaign now. That's right. But they were desperate. They were just doing whatever they thought would help them find the murder of these six family members. Yeah, they were trying their best. Mm Mm-hmm. Including using psychics and hypnosis. (laughs) And I couldn't find, I looked, I kept looking and I was like, who the heck did they put under hypnosis? Yeah. Because there was nobody left. And no witnesses. No. Canada, what are we doing? (laughs) This was the end of the 70s where our police force maybe tasting those magic mushrooms (laughs) at the time. I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like it was a very interesting case to investigate. I can imagine. And the police definitely didn't give up. (laughs) And what a panic finding six family members three generations of a family murdered brutally, you'd be doing anything you could to try and catch this killer because what a risk that poses to the population. Absolutely. And so they were doing their best, whatever they could think of. For sure. They were trying it out. Better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So most of the tips they received had them looking far away from the original crime scene. But the only evidence they had to go on was pointing them to the area around the crime scene. It was believed because of the secluded location where the car was found that the murderer must have had some previous knowledge of the area to know that there was a horse trail that went back so far into the bush. Just as police were about to start another wild goose chase following a tip about the two Frenchmen across the border into the U.S., two forestry workers called in a tip of their own. They had spotted a truck camper like the Bentleys on Trophy Mountain a spot that was only 24 kilometers, or about 15 miles, from the murder site, and only 32 kilometers, or 20 miles, from where the Johnson's car was located. It just happened to be just on the other side of the mountain where the car on the campsite had been. This seems more likely. Mm -hmm. The police investigated and found that the camper had been burned using an accelerant just like the Johnson's car had been. Police also believed that the truck had purposely been driven deep into the bush with the intention of rolling it over a nearby gorge, again pointing to that somebody had to know the area of where they were placing these vehicles. Yeah, they had to be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. 
Other than a 22 caliber bullet hole in the passenger door of the camper, the truck gave up no other evidence of what had gone so terribly wrong on the family camping trip. Because of the truck's location, police now grew more confident that the murderers had to have a knowledge of the logging roads in the Wellsgrave Provincial Park. They chose to focus again on Clearwater, a small town just south of the park. They campaigned door-to-door in the small town asking if anyone had seen anything suspicious. During the second round of interviews, David Shearing's name kept coming up as a possible person to investigate. Hmm. David Shearing was a local man that had been 23 at the time of the murders. Only 23? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's so scary. Mm-hmm. So young. But not unusual, actually, for a serial killer. Nope. Prime time. And he had lived in his mother's house only a few kilometers away from the Bear Creek campsite and worked in Clearwater at the time. David's father had been a prison guard before he passed away from cancer in the March prior to the murders, and his mother was now living in a retirement home. His parents must have been quite a bit older when they had him. I'm assuming if his mother's in a retirement center already and he's only 23. Well, I think that it was more that where they lived was way out in the bush. Right. And so I think after her husband passed away, she just didn't want to live out in the wilderness by yourself. That's scary. Oh, for sure. You don't know who's creeping around in the bushes. Yeah, it's your son, lady. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And did his father work at the prison that the campsite was at? Mm -hmm. So that's why he was so familiar with that area as well. Yeah, he grew up in this area and he was taught to track in this area and to be stealthy and sneak up on animals and shoot and... David had been in trouble with the police many times before with drugs and drunk driving and getting into fights. There are also numerous rumors that the police dug up about David, that he had gotten away with a hit and run a couple of years ago, and that he liked underage girls. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. There was two underage girls at the campsite. Yeah. And around the time of the murder, he had been asking around on how to re-register a stolen truck and how to fix a bullet hole in the door. That's not suspicious at all. Nope. And it makes you wonder why wasn't this brought forward right away? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't have the truck right away. Right. But that would seem suspicious that your friend is asking these things right after police are looking for this shooter in yeah. that area. This to the police was a huge break because the information about the bullet hole in the truck door had never been released to the public. Ah, I love it when that happens in an investigation. That's what they do, though. They keep little tidbits back, right? So they can weed out all of these hundreds of tips that were coming in daily. For sure. We see that often in different cases. Mm -hmm. Police interviewed a friend of David's, and under the pressure of interrogation, the friend admitted that he had been in the car the night in 1980 when David had run over a man on the Wells Gray Park Road. He hadn't bothered to stop, and the man had died from his injuries. This tragic story gave police the reason to bring David in for questioning. They just had to find out where he currently was. People that knew David at the time of the murders said that they saw no change in his mood or behavior. He carried on the same way as he always did. Just like after he killed this man in this hit and run, he just continued drinking and partying with friends. Oh, that's terrible. So no conscience at all. No, not at all. Police tracked David down in Tumblr Ridge, about 800 kilometers north of Clearwater. He was awaiting a court date to face charges of being in possession of some $40,000 worth of stolen items. On the way into the station, David let it slip that he had a 22 caliber Remington pump action at his mom's house. He's just talking to these police officers because he doesn't know why they're bringing him in. He's already up on charges, and so he's just so used to the police bringing him in (laughs) that he's just talking to them casually. 
During the interrogation, David said that he wasn't too smart and hanging out with the wrong people and he had stolen the tools because he was out of money. And so he's having this conversation with the police about this is the reason why I stole all these tools. He thinks that he's being brought in about the tools. He then asked the officer if he was investigating the Johnson Bentley murders. What? Mm -hmm. He brings up the murders? He brings up the murders. So he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. No, definitely not the sharpest tool <laughs> at all. But David, you're the only tool yeah. in this story. The dirtbag tool. At this point, the officer tells him that he's looking into a hit and run. And David opened up immediately about hitting a person coming home from a party while he had been drinking. What? Mm -hmm. So he just turns over and he's like, yeah, I did hit somebody. The story David tells is that it had been an accident while he was topping a hill and he was really upset that he had killed somebody. Yeah, so upset that he didn't go tell authorities. That's what I thought too, right? If you're upset, you go and try to help the person. You hit and stop and help. Yes. <laughs> Was his intelligence ever tested? Because he's not seeming too bright here. No, he's not the sharpest tool. After signing his confession, the officer asked David what he thinks about the family of six being murdered and if David was actually familiar with where the truck was found. David says he feels really bad for the community and that he is familiar with the area where the truck had been found. The officer then very quickly and casually asks if he is familiar with where the campsite was too. David answers immediately, oh yeah, Bear Creek. He knows exactly where that campsite was and knows immediately that he has revealed too much. That information, again, was never released to the public. Oh, he is shooting himself in the foot. Mm -hmm. The police didn't have to do anything. He just <laughs> interrogates himself. Oh, what yeah. a dumb dirtbag. Yeah. Thankfully, though. They were already super suspicious of him, but they didn't have to dig too deep. No, he, and he's handing himself to them on a silver platter, basically. Mm -hmm. He just really wasn't too smart about it. His self-assessment was correct. Yeah. The next thing he says to the officer... I need to speak with a lawyer now. <laughs> uh, yeah, you do, David. It was an interesting confession. It is interesting because a normal person, and I can say normal because he's a dirtbag, a normal person would be so nervous and would not be just spewing out all this information. No, not at all. Yeah. And I don't believe that it's guilt that's making him spew out all this information. And if I had just murdered a family of six, I would not be in the police station asking them about the murder. Yeah, I wouldn't be bringing it up with the police at all. Yeah, he was probably wanting to know if they had suspects or he was probably looking for a confirmation that he was safe, mm -hmm. not or, realizing that it was going to point finger to him. Right. Or wondering if, is this finally it? Remember, it's been almost a year now and he's wondering maybe, am I caught? Like, is this finally the time that you're going to bring me in? Yeah, maybe. In his initial confession to the police... David said that he had visited the family that second night on August 10th and crept up on the four unsuspecting adults who were sitting around the campfire and spent four shots killing them all dead. He went into the tent where the girls were sleeping and shot them as well. Then he put all their bodies into the car. He packed up the campsite and stole the equipment that interested him. He then drove the car to the other area. The next day he returned and stole more things and moved the truck as well. He then told police how he drove the car and the truck on a different night to the locations where they would be found and set them on fire using gasoline. Wow. And then at the end of his confession, he says, I just feel really bad about it. Does he say why he did it? Not now. No. Nope. Wow. After a year of evading capture, David was charged with six counts of second degree murder. The Crown had considered charging him with first degree murder, but they didn't think they had enough evidence to prove the planning and the intent. 
He never gave them any information about why he committed the murders at all. But we know there was planning because he came back on the second day to do it. With a gun. Right. Mm -hmm. So at the time that they were deciding what to charge him with, prosecutors didn't have a lot of evidence to back up that first degree murder charge because he wasn't giving anything away about what his motives were. It just all seemed so random that that's why they had to go with the second degree murder charge. The day after his confession, he walked the police through what he had done at each of the crime scenes. He returned the boat and the camping gear he had stolen and handed over the gun that he had used to kill the family. He was super cooperative. But to police, the motive of killing a family of six simply to steal their camping gear seemed really weak. Yeah. After 14 months, the investigation was finally over. In total, the police had processed nearly 13,000 tips and had 30 filing cabinets worth of paperwork and had handed out over 10,000 flyers. But the RCMP still wanted the real motive for the crime. Yeah, it's not adding up. No, it doesn't add up at all. The police hoped that looking into David's past would give them some idea as to his motives. David William Shearing was born in 1959 to Rose and William Shearing. His parents were hardworking and he had two siblings. His school counselor observed him to be quiet and shy and self-conscious. He was a C-average student and after high school, he had completed a heavy mechanics course but reportedly struggled to find a full-time job. Over the next five years, he would move from job to job. He liked to fish and hike in his spare time and his brother would describe him as a kind, sympathetic, and sensitive soul. Although at times he drank in excess, his drinking was not an obvious problem to his family. And I guess they believe that the trouble with the law and drugs was just something that, you know, young people did. Oh, geez. Yeah. Boys will be boys. There was a real division in opinions of what kind of person David was, as the police were doing in this investigation into his past. He had multiple witnesses vouch for his character, and many people were shocked to find that he had anything to do with the murders at all, even his mother and brother. But the other side of his personality was also well documented. He liked to drink and party, and he had several previous encounters with the law. So it seemed like there was this total dichotomy of character, where people thought he was this nice, quiet guy, and then this other wild partier side that other people reported. But in David's case, I think his actions speak way louder than all of these character references that he's bringing forward. Because you can skew your references to make you look like such a great person. Mm -hmm. Not many people see your dark side. No. On April 16th, 1984, the day the trial was set to begin, now at 25 years old, David Shearing decided to plead guilty to six counts of second-degree murder. And the Edmonton Journal described him as a hulking, broad-shouldered man with a hooked nose. As he entered his plea, he cried the whole time. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I have to see a picture of him now. <laughs> his hooked nose. He looks like a dirtbag. He does look like a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Yuck. Sorry, I can say that because he murdered all these people. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. And we're not to the worst of it yet. Oh, hold on. Because we have to dig deep for motives. You can't just take it on face value that he was out to steal camping equipment. No, it's not adding up. No. At his sentencing, to address the multiple good character references that David had, the judge read the statement. Obviously, there is another side of him, which even his family and closest friends are unaware of. A side that makes him, in my view, a very dangerous man. There is the David Shearing, who, without any apparent motive, walked into a campsite and deliberately shot and killed four adults, and who then knelt at a tent flap and shot and killed two young girls. And then there is the David Shearing, 
who carried out an elaborate, time-consuming, and ghoulish cover-up. Yes, I agree, I must consider the character of the accused, as described by his friends and acquaintances, and by his family. But I must also keep firmly in my mind the other David Shearing, who was the one who committed these dreadful crimes. Yeah, and I'm really nervous that he didn't just kill those girls. And that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. It's awful. Oh, no. David Shearing was sentenced to a maximum penalty of six life sentences to be served concurrently with no chance of parole for 25 years. And at this time, it was the harshest sentence ever given out for second degree murder in Canadian history. Yeah, that's usually a first degree murder charge. Mm -hmm. Good. And it was actually good that they did. Because after he was safely in jail, David revealed his true motives for the crime. Motives that would have gotten him a much more severe penalty. But he had purposely kept it under wraps until afterwards. That's how it seems. So he maybe wasn't that dumb. And he had even told one of the investigators after he had confessed, he told them, I'm not ready to talk about it now, but maybe I will tell you later. Oh. And so that investigator then, after he was sentenced and back in jail, went up to him and said, okay, you told me you'd tell me. Now you got to tell me. And now he has nothing to lose, so we're likely going to get the truth. Mm-hmm. The whole truth was is that he had deviant sexual urges as a youth and fantasies that revolved around young girls since his mid-teens. Oh. From an age of 15, David had had sadistic urges towards young girls that caused him to get aroused. And it was something that he had thought he had kept hidden and repressed inside of himself. When he entered the campsite the first night on his way home from work, it was the two young girls that attracted his attention especially Janet with her long blonde hair. Oh no, I was fearful of this. Mm -hmm. And I kept the details to a minimum, but be warned, we are going to talk about the sexual assault of two young girls. As he watched the girls, his sexual fantasies grew more compelling and he made plans to fulfill them. He said he returned to the campsite and waited until the girls had gone to bed and that he knew he was going to have to kill those other four to get to the girls. Absolutely, because no one is getting to your child unless they're going through you. That's right. David said he crept up behind the camper with his twenty-two rifle in hand. His creeping was noticed by one of the women and he opened fire. He shot Bob first as he stood up from the fire pit. Next was George. He shot him as George ran for his gun that he kept in the cab of his truck. Jackie was shot as she ran to the tent to protect her girls. Oh, no. And lastly, Edith was shot in the head as she frantically tried to get into the camper. Then the disgusting dirt bag went to the tent where Janet and Karen were listening with alarm to all the unfamiliar noises that were happening around them. He told them that there were bad people trying to get in and hurt them. He pretended to be somebody that was going to help them and that their parents were trying to get away from the bad people and that they were going for help. What a creep. Mm-hmm. He told them to stay in the tent and hide while he returned to help the adults. David zipped the girls up in the tent and did return and help Bob to die by shooting the still gasping man one more time. Then he cleaned up the bodies of the girls, parents, and grandparents, unceremoniously dumping them in the backseat of the car and covering all four of their bodies with a blanket. He then climbed into the tent with the two young girls and molested them all the while telling them that he was protecting them from the bad motorbike people. That is sickening. So disgusting. What a dirtbag. Those Mm -hmm. poor girls, what they had to endure in their last moments. And those parents. The mom running to the tent to save her girls. 
And the dad getting that second shot, knowing that his girls were still there and not knowing what was going to happen. And that isn't the end for the girls. And those adults were treated just as collateral damage. Oh, absolutely. He didn't have any regard for them whatsoever. He just wanted the girls. They were just in his way. Mm -hmm. The next day after making the girls clean up the campsite, he made the girls sit in the front seat of the car with their dead family members in the back seat. He drove them to a new area where he told them that they would be safe for a little bit. He kept telling the young girls that their parents were coming back for them. They just had to listen to him. But they already knew their parents were dead. They didn't. Apparently, he says that they didn't. They didn't know they were in the back seat? They didn't know because he kept them covered up with a blanket. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And there was some speculation from some of the investigators that there's no way that these 13 and 11-year-old, that they didn't know that he had already killed their parents. But according to David's confession, they had no idea. They believed him when he said that he was protecting them. I just don't know how they wouldn't know, like four bodies piled in the back seat. How you would not turn around. Yeah, and that would yeah. be a big pile. It was a big pile, but he had apparently had covered it up with a blanket. How traumatic. Mm-hmm. David would spend his nights assaulting them in the tent and then return to work like nothing had happened the next morning. What? Mm-hmm. And they never got away? No, because he told them that it was necessary to stay in the tent while he was gone because the wild animals and the bikers might come back for them and that they would be safe as long as they stayed inside the tent until he got back. So they must have believed him. Mm -hmm. They didn't try to get away. They stayed in the tent. When he would return in the evening, he would tell them things like he had saved their parents, but that they had decided that it was safest for the girls to stay with him and that they were trying to catch the bad guys so that when they came out of the tent, they would be safe. What a manipulator. For three nights, this continued. On the fourth night, he told the girls that their parents were waiting for them at a fishing cabin that was far away. He made them walk through the night in the pouring rain. It took them two days to reach his intended hiding place in the woods. While at the cabin, David carved his and Janet's initials in the wall. He was absolutely infatuated with the 13-year-old. Oh, what a sicko. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a relationship, David. No, you're a predator. That's what he believes it is. While hiding the kidnapped girls at the cabin, David had a close encounter with a local prison guard from the new Bear Creek Correctional Facility. The prison guard knocked on the door of the cabin just to let the residents of the cabin know that he had some prisoners out on an outing and that there was no reason to be fearful that he was watching over them. No. Little did they know that Karen and Janet were actually being held hostage right behind the door that he had knocked on. This could be a movie. An absolute horror movie. Yeah. Right? What are the chances that that would even happen? And had they said something or anything had happened, those girls could have possibly been saved. Yeah, made a sound. And could you imagine being that prison guard after, knowing that they were right there? Yeah, you were face-to-face with this killer, and those two young girls were right there. Mm -hmm. But he had no reason to suspect David. It was near his property. He knew the area. And how ironic that he was stopping there to warn them about these other prisoners. Yeah. Don't worry. You're safe. There's no reason to be fearful. Yeah. When David was probably the biggest one to be fearful of. Mm -hmm. So the next day on August 16th, David moved the girls to his mother's house because he had been found out at the cabin and he was feeling that that wasn't very secure. So taking them to your mom's house is going to help? Uh-huh. Once there, he took Karen out for a walk alone. When they were far enough away from the house, he told Karen that he had to urinate and to look away. 
She obeyed him and looked the other direction. That's when he shot her in the back of the head. He couldn't do it face to face, but he had her look away and then he shot her right in the back of the head. What a spineless coward. Mm -hmm. David then returned to his mother's cabin. When Janet asked where Karen had went, David said that he had tied her sister up outside. So now the facade is over. He's not pretending to save them anymore. And I can't even begin to wrap my head around the terror that these girls went through. Could you imagine being Janet and being like, okay, my one and only person left in my family is now being tied up outside? Yeah, she doesn't even know that she's dead at that point. No, she doesn't. Oh. He had kept them in the tent using fear against wild animals and bad guys. And now he told Janet that he had tied her sister up out in the open with all the fearful things that he had just warned them about. And already terrified because she doesn't even know where her parents are or what's really happening. She's getting molested every day. And he had built this fear in them for the last four or five days about how they had to go along with him. And then he just stuck her sister out with all of the things that he had warned them about. But really, the most fearful and monstrous thing was David himself. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So she had to go along with whatever he said because she wanted her sister back. Oh, he is just so savage. Mm -hmm. When he returned to the cabin, David said he was excited that him and Janet were finally going to be alone. So again, Karen was just collateral damage. He had molested her too, but the one that he was really after was Janet. That's why he had carved her initials in the cabin wall. He is delusional. Mm -hmm. When describing what happened during that night, he had deluded himself into remembering it as being a romantic evening where he and Janet had talked long hours and he had taught an inexperienced woman about the joys of sex. In reality, he had raped and tortured a terrified 13-year-old. 24 hours after he had killed Karen, David walked Janet into the forest as well. She too was told to turn her head because he had to urinate and she received a bullet for her obedience. She had been repeatedly raped and tortured for seven days. Why did he kill her? I thought he thought they were in a relationship. He never really gives any indication about why he decided to kill them. He was just finished with her. He was finished with her. Yeah. I feel like dirtbag isn't even a strong enough word to describe him. No, not at all. David then stuffed the two girls' bodies in the trunk of the car and drove it with the decaying adult bodies into the bush where he then set it on fire. So they were found in the trunk? Mm -hmm. The girls Mm -hmm. were the ones found in the trunk. And could you imagine driving that car out? Those bodies had been out in the heat and the humidity for over a week, just rotting in the back seat. No, all stacked up on top of each other. When David's real motives for the murders were released, all the people that had stood up as character witnesses for him were shocked and found it so hard to believe that he had done these things. His mother, Rose, said that she had never even seen him with a serious girlfriend and so had no idea that he had these sexual urges. I can't even imagine being his mom. Nope. It would really shake your faith in humanity if you went to bat for a guy like David and then found out what he had done. Well, and that you had never suspected it of him? No. During his prison psychological assessment, after the sentencing, David was diagnosed as a sexual sadist and a pedophile. Yeah. David Shearing has now changed his last name to his mother's maiden name, Ennis, and nine years after being sentenced, met a woman named Heather. After writing letters and visiting together frequently in prison, they were married a year later in 1994. Stop. Yes. Stop it. No. With him in jail. Somebody married him. Oh, I can't even. This makes me angry. He should not have love. He should not be married. And what kind of woman is going to marry a perpetrator who is going to torture and abuse and rape and molest 
children. Isn't that crazy? That's condoning his actions. Well, she's gone to bat for him on several of his parole hearings, saying that he's a changed man. Yeah, baloney. Nope, nope, nope. Christy isn't buying it. And for this one, I can't buy it either. He is a dirtbag through and through. This is not your attractive bad boy. No, No, it's not. We're not looking at James Dean here. (laughs) No. This is such a slimy, creepy, disgusting human. And I just don't even understand how a prisoner is even allowed to marry in jail. I know that always blows my mind too, actually. It's so crazy. Heather's changed her last name to Ennis, and she visits her new husband four times a week. Every two months, she gets to join him for a family or conjugal visit for a three-day weekend at the prison in special facilities. That's wild. That blows my mind. It seems so wrong. That should not be allowed. No. Between 1995 and 2001, David has completed several programs for sexual offenders, but the organizers of these programs believe that his attendance is only for the benefit of the parole board. He really shows no interest in controlling his urges or being self-reflective. In 2008, after spending 25 years in prison, David applied for parole, but he was denied. Good. Because David has served his 25-year sentence, he is eligible for parole, and that eligibility is revisited every two years. That is scary. Mm -hmm. Has he been applying every two years? Almost every two years, yeah. Oh my goodness. And every time he does pursue that right, the poor family members of the Johnson and Bentley families have to again relive the horrors and the indignities that their loved ones had to suffer. To me, it seems like such a cruel thing for the victim's families to have to go through every two years if he decides that he's going to apply for parole. Yeah. And I understand that they don't have to go to the hearings, but most of them willingly go through the pain each time and reopen all those old wounds just to make sure that their family's murderer is kept behind bars. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's something you would not want to do, but you would do it for your loved one. Yeah. And realistically, had the motives and the truth come out sooner... David would have been charged with first-degree murder. Plus, he probably would have gotten sexual charges as well. Mm -hmm. David's last attempt at parole was in September 2021, where again he was denied. He remains at the Bowdoin Institution just south of Red Deer, Alberta. So he's 63 now. Yeah. That's young enough to still do some significant damage in society. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not past perpetrator age. Nope. Hopefully he does not get released. That is wild. So that is the case of the perverted and beastly dirtbag David Shearing Ennis, the man who stalked a family on vacation to prey upon innocent children. And that's why the most common site in horror movies is the campsite. Yeah, it makes sense. And thanks for ruining my future camping trips. (laughs) (laughs) And my girls are at the age now where they can go camping with their friends and stuff. I'm going to be a basket case. (laughs) I'll be the creeper in the bushes (laughs) watching them to make sure they're okay. It does make you think twice about which site you're going to choose, though, right? Don't you want to be closer to somebody else's family now? Yeah, usually we like to have a secluded spot, but maybe not now. No. And you honestly, having six people there, you have that false sense of security. It's not like you're camping by yourself or just a couple. Nope. Wow. Well, let's hope he never gets released. I hope not. I just think it's so wild that they get to get married. I know. That's always crazy. And three-day conjugal visits. They just play house at the prison. Yeah. And maybe I'm a little harsh on Heather, but I'm just so curious as to what someone's reasoning is to get involved with a convict who has done something like that and had those motives. She's just a firm believer that he is reformed now. Yeah. Even though the parole board doesn't agree. Interesting. That would be amazing to interview someone like that. That would be. To get their side of it. To understand their motives. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for ruining my day. (laughs) 
you'll still be safe when you head out to your next camping trip. Just don't choose the site that's super secluded. Yeah. Look for one that says dirt bag free. (laughs) (laughs) But we do hope that you enjoy the beginning of camping season and we hope you keep listening. We're a great thing to listen to en route. But until then, hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. Hey, listeners. No, I get to do it oh, on yeah, your episode. Right. <laughs> I don't have anything else after that. Um, awesome. Actually, I take that back. It's not awesome because we know they're all going to die. Of the Groman. Groman. The girl who? It's not girl. Wait, I'm too far away Groman. now. <laughs> and to the point where like the door handle and like. To and the like point, totally. And, like, Sorry, I'm being a pain in the butt. No, that's okay. How do six bodies make 50 bags? Well, they're evidence bags. Like, yeah. they're like Ziploc bags, oh. right? <laughs> Can they... you put that in there? <laughs> I say, always say dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> they're not garbage bags, Christy. <laughs> makes so much more sense. <laughs> I'm like... And how to fix a billet hole. A, a billet, billet hole? Oops, I touched the table with my cup. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just need a drink. Okay, I'd be quiet now. <laughs> you set me up. <laughs> I didn't set you up. I didn't think about it. No, we're good. Oh, no. It's going to be another Patty Roar thing. <laughs> well, that was terrible. Thanks, Melissa. Of the programs? Oh, but... I touched my mic. Okay, sorry. sorry that's a touch on my lip. <laughs> and excuse my shameless plug. I had to put it in there. <laughs>Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.